for the last month been talking about what's going on in heaven and the throne room of God. We've read all the scriptures about God's throne and what he looks like and his throne and the angels around him and the cherubim and the rainbow and the sea of glass and all that and and what God is doing, what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. He isn't up there building us a mansion. He's building the kingdom of heaven and he's establishing Jesus as king and Two weeks ago, the last time I got to speak to you, I talked to you about angels, and we spent some time on the throne room of God and what the angels are doing and where they're at and what they're like and the different kinds and all all of that. So this morning, what I want to talk to you about is a particularly famous angel who caused some trouble, started a fight in the throne room of God. So we're going to start in Isaiah 14, and we're also going to read Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14, 9 to 21, and this is abbreviated for clarity. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Your arrogance is brought down to the pit, and the sound of your stringed instruments. You will lie on a bed of maggots covered by worms. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mountain of hosts and will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to the grave, to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the one who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? But you are cast out like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. That's Isaiah 14. Now we're going to move to Ezekiel 28, verses 1 to 19, again abbreviated for clarity. Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you say, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods. Therefore, thus the Lord God says, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God, They shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain. Will you still claim, I am a God, before him who slays you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised. Thus says the Lord, God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you. O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. And I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. I want to talk to you today about an angel named Lucifer. He's also called Satan or the devil. I've never preached a sermon on the devil before. I've mentioned him, of course, lots of times, but we've never just looked at the scriptures and what God has to say about him. But he is actually the fourth most described person in the Bible, after Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. No one else is described in more detail as far as his origin and his fall and his character and his work and his influence and his judgment and his destiny. God does not want us to be ignorant of who Satan is. He's not a myth. He's not the personification of evil. He's not evil energy or some fable or a superstition of ancient mythology. He's a real person. Not a human, but a person, a being. He's mentioned a hundred times in the New Testament alone. God wants us to know some things. He's not a figure of speech. Jesus didn't cast a metaphor into the pigs and then the pigs ran off and killed themselves jumping off a cliff. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, he was not dealing with some personified evil thought. 
He was dealing with a person, a being. God is not going to be judging superstition at the last judgment. It's a real being. There's a person there. And these two passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, tell us who he is and where he started out. His name is Lucifer. He was an angel in heaven. And he decided he wanted to be God, so God threw him out. In short, that's what we just read. There are two more passages I want to read before we move on and say too much more. Revelation 12, verses 3 and 4 and 7 and 9. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads appeared in heaven. His tail drew a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them to the earth. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So combining all four of these passages, which are all four about the same thing, God begins by telling us there was an angel, he was a cherub, and his name is Lucifer, which means the light bearer, the one who carries the light. In our day in English, Lucifer kind of has this really wicked, scary, dark sense about it, because we know that's the devil's name, but Lucifer is actually meant to be a beautiful name. It means the one who carries the light. And God says he was glorious. He was beautiful. God says he was wise. And he plays musical instruments, apparently. He was covered in precious stones. And two times in Ezekiel 28, God calls him the covering cherub. The phrase covering cherub or the cherub that covers is in Exodus of the two angels on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember when I taught you about God's throne? And the name of his throne is the mercy seat. And when God tells Moses how to make the Ark of the Covenant, he said, on the lid you will have this flat gold lid and you will have an angel on either end of it with their wings pointed in like this and the tips of their wings will touch on top of the mercy seat. There's a cherub on either end and they cover the mercy seat. And God says to Moses, I showed you the real thing in heaven. You build a copy of it on earth. If you were here, you remember that, those scriptures. So there are, on the Ark of the Covenant, there are two cherubs that cover the the throne of God, the mercy seat, because there are two in heaven, and apparently Lucifer was one of them, because God calls him the cherub that covers. So Lucifer stood right next to the throne of God and covered the mercy seat with his wings. And in a moment of time, he decided... I'm tired of giving worship today. I think I'll try to move on to the seat. And Revelation 12 says, With his tail he drew a third of the stars out of the sky. The traditional historical translation of that prophetic imagery is that a third of the angels in heaven joined him in his rebellion. And Revelation 12 says there was a battle between Michael and his angels and Lucifer and his angels. So we know there was angels that went with Satan. He didn't do this by himself. And that battle lasted as long as a lightning strike. Because it's no contest. Satan is not God's equal opposite. He is a created being. Hello? Right? He was an exalted angel. God says so. He was very, very high in the ranks. High enough in the ranks to stand right next to the throne of God and be one of the covering cherubs. He was beautiful and wise. God describes him in very positive terms. But he decides not to give the worship anymore. I want it for myself. I will ascend to the throne. I will be like the Most High. And apparently a third of the angels decided to follow him in that rebellion, and it's not even a contest. Jesus said, I saw him fall like lightning. It was that fast. Boom. There's no effort at all involved in God fighting Satan. Let me say that again. God does not break a sweat. It takes no time for him to do what he needs to do. Satan 
cannot resist God in any measurable way whatsoever. He thought he could, but he was wrong. Hello? I want to point out in Revelation 12, it says, The great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. They're all the same being. It's all the same person. There's some confusion sometimes. You'll hear preachers or scholars want to claim that, you know, that there's different beings. There's not. The serpent in the tree, the being that Jesus calls the devil and Satan, it's the same as the dragon in Revelation. So, we have Lucifer starting out as the son of the morning, a very powerful, high-ranking, glorious angel that stands right next to God and apparently plays worship music for him. It mentions string instruments and piped instruments and cymbals. He gets to maybe lead the worship in heaven, I don't know. And he's covered in precious stones, and he walks in fire. If you understand the scriptures of the throne room from before, you remember that. But he decided, I want to be God. I want to be worshipped. I want to sit on the throne. And God throws him out like lightning. When did that happen? The Bible doesn't say it happened on such and such day, but it does tell us when it happened. Let's go to Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Amen. Go Jesus. That's a great passage. Memorize it. Think on it. You could leave now, and it would be worth the price of admission. Just go think on that verse. Yay, Jesus. He's everything. All right. This verse says Jesus created everything. For him and by him are all things created in heaven and on earth. Okay, when the Bible uses the word heaven, sometimes it means sky, Sometimes it means outer space where the stars and planets are, and sometimes it means the throne room of God where the spiritual stuff is, all right? The word heaven is used for, this, for all three of those. This one says, Jesus created the earth and heaven and all that are in them, the visible and the invisible stuff. So how much did Jesus create? All of it, right? The stars and the planets and the angels and the spiritual heaven, Yes? Jesus created it all, everything that's visible and everything that's invisible, whether it's on earth or heaven. So all the physical stuff and all the spiritual stuff, Jesus made it all. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that is four of five things that are on the list in the verse that says we are not wrestling with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities. And in that other verse that where it says we're not fighting people and physical battles, we're fighting a spiritual battle, that list is... It's different authority terms, and so generally people take that to be like a list of rankings or a hierarchy in the demonic world, dominions and powers and principalities and so on. This verse uses the same four of the same five words, but it's not just talking about the powers of hell. It just seems to be that there is a ranking or an order or a hierarchy of spiritual powers, angelic and demonic. And that these words for dominion and power and thrones are just different kinds of spiritual authority. Jesus created it all. That's all the point I want to make right now. Jesus created everything visible and everything invisible, everything that's on the earth and everything that's spiritual. Nehemiah 9.6 says, You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts. Again, in the Old Testament particularly, when we see the word heaven, sometimes it means outer space and the planets and stars. And other times it means God's throne, the spiritual heaven. And when we see the words host of heaven, sometimes it means the stars, and sometimes it means the angel army with trillions of angels. But when it says the heaven of heavens, it always means God's home. Just for clarification, Nehemiah repeats himself. You made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, that's the angel army. The earth and everything in it, the host of heaven worships you. Jesus made it all. You with me? These two verses just say God, Jesus made everything, physical and spiritual, it's all there. Next one, Genesis 2.1, at the end of the six-day creation, it says, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. 
So when did Jesus make all of the invisible stuff in the invisible heaven? Sometime during Genesis chapter 1. Next verse. Exodus 20, verse 11. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Bible doesn't say in so many words, on this day, this is when he created the angels. It doesn't say that. But it does say he created everything in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible stuff, in the six days. And at the end of the six days, Genesis 1.31, he says he looks at his creation and he said, it is very good. And then the next story is, there's a serpent in a tree. Somewhere between, it is very good, and there's a serpent in the tree, is when Jesus casts Satan out of heaven like lightning. We have no idea how long that was. Adam and Eve could have lived in perfection with God for one day or a hundred years or a million years. The Bible doesn't say. We have no idea how to know how long they lived without dying in perfect communion and without sinning and all that. But I know human nature. God says, you can have anything in the whole planet except this tree. If you told your five-year-old that, where would he go? I think I'm pretty sure it's the next day. Eve's wandering around like, I wonder why I can't have that one. There's a bajillion trees in the world and she's hanging out around the one she's not supposed to be at. I'm going to guess it's not very long after Adam and Eve are created that Eve is hanging out at the tree. Looking around and there's a snake in there that is the devil. He's already been cast out of heaven. I don't know how long that was, but at some point immediately after creation of heaven and earth and all the things that's in the spirit and the physical, Lucifer rebelled and was cast out of heaven and began to deceive humanity. His names and titles in scripture tell us a lot about who he is. Only one time is he named Lucifer, and that's an Isaiah 14 passage that I just read you. Lucifer, again, I said earlier, but it's a positive name. It's not some heavy metal pentagram, candles and blood kind of name. Uh, Lucifer is a beautiful name, and it means the light bearer, the one who carries the light. He is called the son of the morning. God in this passage is, is saying how beautiful he was before his heart was lifted up in pride. He is actually a very beautiful and attractive being. He's called Satan 56 times. Satan is a Hebrew word that means the accuser in the sense of a prosecuting attorney. The prosecuting attorney stands before the judge and says, Judge, Mitch did this and this and this and this. And Colton did this and this and this and this. And Mark did this and this and this and this. He's the accuser that's constantly reminding God of our sin. I don't know how he has any time to remind God of your sin because he's got to be totally busy with mine. But he's standing before God accusing us. And Revelation 12 says that, that he is the accuser of our brothers. In 1 Peter 5.8, he's uh, your adversary, the devil. He's the one that is our enemy. He has made himself our enemy and he's accusing us. He is the Satan or the Satan. He's called the devil 35 times, mostly by Jesus. But all through the Bible, he's called that. Genesis, Revelation, and 2 Corinthians 11, he's called the serpent. Um, in Revelation 12 and 13 and 20, he's the dragon and the great dragon and the fiery red dragon. In Matthew 10 and 12, Jesus and the Pharisees both call him Beelzebub, which is an Old Testament word that means Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Manure Pile, uh, which is an insult to his kingdom and hell. Deuteronomy 13 and Judges 20 and 1 Samuel several times. Those are just some examples, but another Old Testament name for him is Belial, which means worthless. In 1 John 5 and 2 Thessalonians 2, he is amongst lots of other occasions, but he's called the evil one. Different Bible translations call him the wicked one or the lawless one. And then there's some really colorful translations that get really creative. Uh, he's, the, he's wickedness incarnate. He is the embodiment of disobedience. He is the perfection of lawlessness. John 8, Jesus calls him a murderer twice. He calls him the liar and the father of lies. In Matthew 4, 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, he's called the tempter. 
In John 12 and 14 and 16, and in every one of those cases, Jesus is naming him this. He calls him the ruler of this world. And that's really important. I'll come back to that in just a moment. He's called the ruler of this world. And in Revelation 2, again, Jesus speaking to the people of the church of Pergamos, he said, I know the city where you live, where Satan has his throne. So when Jesus says that the devil is the ruler of this world, he's not speaking metaphorically. Satan actually has a throne somewhere on the planet, and he is ruling this world. And you can see that from the consequences of life in this world, that he's in charge. Hello? Continuing on in the same sentence, Jesus says, I know you live where Satan dwells. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once like God is. He has an actual spiritual body and he is somewhere and Jesus at that time said he lived in Pergamos which is a Greek city in what is now Turkey I'm guessing he's probably moved to Hollywood by now uh, or maybe Washington DC I'm totally serious uh, uh, Satan's throne is in one of those two places and he is ruling from there uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess from LA he is the ruler of this world Jesus called him that uh, he has actual authority because in Luke, in, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, says the devil took him up on a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and he says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just bow down and worship me. And remember, he's tempting Jesus to try to get him to sin. Yes, the devil is the father of lies, but he can't be lying when he says all of this is mine or it wouldn't tempt Jesus. Yeah. Right? If Jesus knew that that was a lie, that doesn't tempt me. You're lying and they don't belong to you. But it is tempting because what he's tempting Jesus to do is you don't have to go to the cross to become king of the world. I'll let you out of all that suffering. You just bow down and worship me and I'll give it all to you. And that does tempt Jesus because he knows it's true and he knows it would happen. Satan is the ruler of this world. He is an actual spiritual king. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's called the God of this world. In Revelation 9.11, he has five names. The king of the abyss, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is destroyer, which in Greek is Apollyon and in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Ephesians 2.2, he's called the prince of the power of the air. In Matthew 24.12, he's called the prince of demons. I want you to notice the last names that he's been given by Jesus He's a king, he's a god, little g, he's a prince, and he's a ruler. God describes him as very wise and very powerful and very beautiful. Hello? I want you to look at this scripture from Jude. This is verses 8 through 10. Jude's writing about false teachers who are counterfeit Christians in the church, but they're spreading lies. The context of what Jude is telling us doesn't matter for today. I just want you to read this little story that he tells us. These false teachers reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries, or it could be translated luminaries or exalted ones. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of things they do not understand. All right, Jude brings us this really strange story that's not back in the Old Testament. The Bible in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy says Moses wandered off in the wilderness and died just him and God. And the story ends. But Jude comes with this story that after Moses died, Satan and Michael got in an argument over what to do with his body. That's not in the Bible except right here. It's a Jewish story that they told down through the generations. And Jude says, hey, it's true. It actually happened even though it's not back in Deuteronomy. It actually happened, and the story is not my point. The point I want to draw here is that Michael, in standing in front of Satan, Jude says he did not rebuke him. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Hello? Lucifer either outranked Michael, or they are of equal rank. Michael does not have the authority to rebuke him. He fights him, he resists him, he stands against him on our behalf at Jesus' command, but he does not insult him or mock him or try to bind him or get into jokes and mockery and insults. 
which is Jude's whole point here. Folks, the devil is not a joke. He is thousands of years older than us. He has been dealing with humanity for thousands of years. He knows his business. It ain't great big God, little bitty devil. We need Jesus. Hello? The devil's not somebody to joke around or to to resist in your prayers and people get off in some really wild, unscriptural, stupid stuff. Binding the devil and stuff. Jesus never told us to fight the devil. That's his job. He gave us all authority over demons. Not anybody else. Not even Michael the archangel will get presumptive against Lucifer. People who do that do it in great pride and they do it to their own destruction. One last title of Lucifer that actually relates to his Old Testament name from 2 Corinthians 11. Again, Paul's writing about false prophets, but that's not the point for today. It's just what he tells us about Satan. Such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is of no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Paul was writing about counterfeit Christians that claim to be apostles of Christ, but are not. They're teaching lies that aren't scriptural. And he says, it's no big deal. It's not hard to understand how that could happen because Satan appears as an angel of light. So he's called a god, a king, an angel, a ruler. He's called beautiful and wise and glorious, the one who brings light, an angel of light. What does the Bible never, ever once describe him as? A dorky little dude in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork and a tail. Never. It also never describes him as the goat man sitting in a pentagram surrounded by candles sipping on a cup of virgin blood, listening to Ozzy Osbourne. That image of the devil as the goat man is one of his own lies about himself to get us off track because he doesn't want to be the opposite of God he wants to be like the most high that was his sin from the beginning and it is still his strategy today he doesn't want the image that Hollywood has given him or kiss and Alice Cooper and Avenged Sevenfold He wants to be like the Most High, and he still does. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He is an extremely deceptive counterfeiter. If he came as the devil, no one would follow him except Alice Cooper fans and people who play Dungeons and Dragons. There's a few people that would be impressed if he came with blood-dripping skulls. But that's not going to deceive the world. He comes like God. Hello? That's who he wants to be. He isn't hanging around with chicken sacrifices and heavy metal music and ritual chants. Jesus said the Pharisees are his sons. Who are the Pharisees? Perfectly moral people that don't want Jesus. Jesus didn't say the witch doctors are Satan's sons. No, the Pharisees are Satan's sons. I'm not saying that the witches are not Satan's children. I'm not saying the occult stuff isn't real. I totally believe in it all. But that's a distraction as far as Satan's main strategy. Jesus said the Pharisees are his sons. Because they were perfectly moral, good people who didn't think they needed a savior. Satan's crowning achievement, his main goal, is to get you to believe you're a good person. He's never going to come to you as the devil and get you to sacrifice a virgin to him. But he can totally get you to believe that you're good and you don't need Jesus to figure this situation out. 
Hello. The tree he was in that he was trying to get Eve to eat out of is the knowledge of good and evil. Humanity's knowledge of what is good is just as satanic as what is bad. Because everything we do that we try to make good and fix the problems of the world ends up creating more. Every drug we invent has 12,000 side effects. Every government solution, every economic solution, every social solution, it all creates more problems. Because what we say is good outside of Jesus Christ is always evil. He comes as something good. He wants us to get into self-righteousness that is a form of goodness but is actually death. So who are Satan's children now? We don't have Pharisees around as a group. Don't think Ozzy Osbourne and Alice Cooper and some Hollywood horror movie as the children of Satan. The children of Satan are moralizing atheists on college campuses that say we don't need Jesus anymore to figure out what's good. Religion is the cause of all what's wrong in the world and we just need to get rid of it all. We got it figured out. That is the main message of the modern atheists. We know what's good. We don't need religion. Do you understand that? It's Islamic terrorists who behead Christians thinking that God is going to reward them for their fervent righteousness. They genuinely believe they're serving God. They don't think they're serving the devil. In America, it's a country music kind of morality. Party on Saturday night, church on Sunday morning. We're all good people because this is small town America kind of righteousness. It's the hippies who came saying, make love, not war. Love is all we need. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together, try and love one another right now. Do you understand what a close counterfeit that is to Christianity? And it deceived a generation around the world because it sounds so good. But it's not about Jesus. It isn't about repentance of sin. They came preaching peace, and God says one of the ultimate deceptions at the end times is Peace, peace, when there is no peace. You say peace, but I do not say peace. It's a news media that slanders and insinuates 24-7. They sit in the seat of the accuser and destroy lives for profit and politics. It's people, it's groups like Antifa or on the other end of the political spectrum, it's the skinheads or BLM or Code Pink that are so violently hateful, but they wrap themselves in such gross self-righteousness thinking they're fighting social injustice to justify their violence. It's hypocritical celebrities who publicly pose as good people who care and they campaign about these seemingly righteous causes, but behind their scenes they're just as greedy and uncaring as anybody else. It's hypocrites, and some are Christians and some are not, but they put on a respectable public face, but then they harbor dark secrets. Think Catholic bishops and Matt Lauer and Jerry Sandusky and Harvey Weinstein and Jim Baker and Hillary Clinton and Ted Haggard. It's abortion activists and politicians and doctors and corporations who spin abortion as clean and helpful and healthy while they profit from the sale of baby body parts. It's all got a nice clean face on it, Jesus said on the outside, you look really good, but on the inside, you're full of rot and death. It's delusional socialist utopians who believe they can fix the social and economic problems of the world without repenting from sin and calling on Jesus. It's people who come preaching love and peace, and we have to care about each other, and self-esteem, and Love is all we need and don't judge people and care for the poor. It is so close to Christianity. But it is permitting sin. It is endorsing sin. It is forcing sin on our nation. And it has nothing whatsoever to do with Jesus Christ. Love is love. Love whoever you want. Marry whoever you want. But there's no Jesus and there's no truth in it. It's such a close counterfeit. That's the children of Satan. we got to get away from this image of the devil as a goat head and pentagrams and candles and heavy metal. 
and spiritual warfare and occult and all that stuff. It's all there and it's real, but it's a tiny amount of people compared to the people who think they're good. And I don't need a savior. That is Satan, the genius deceiver, the angel of light, the beautiful seducer, the attractive liar. And he's not going to come to you and say that you need to sacrifice a virgin or drink blood or tattoo a pentagram on your forehead. You know, there are people that do that, but that's, he knows he's not going to win the world that way. It's his lies and temptations come and he, and he brings something good, something beautiful, something light. So for the world, he can lead them away from Jesus from the start. But then there are people who want to be Christians and they, they want to know God and they, and they say that they're believers in Christ. But, so if he can't get you away from God, then he's going to, he's so uncreative he can't even make up a lie. All he can do is take the good things that God made and twist them and break them and push them out of the boundaries that God has made so that they kill us instead of the blessing that God made for us. So he takes the beautiful truth of good works in Christ Jesus and he twists it so much that we end up with Mormonism. People who are trying to earn their way into heaven thinking God has a scorecard. He can't make them not believe in God and he can't make them not be good people so he's going to make them think that they can earn their way into heaven and pay for it. He takes the beautiful truth of freedom in Christ and makes it sexually permissive. He takes our capacity for faith, which God put in us to trust him and believe him, and he fills it full of fear. And instead of faith toward God, it's faith toward him. Oh, this bad thing's going to happen, and this bad thing's going to happen, and this terrible disaster's going to happen. You're still having faith, you're just, it's faith in the devil. He takes the beautiful truth and correctness of lawfulness and obeying God's rules, and he twists it and pushes it so far, we end up with Islam. He takes our interest in spiritual power, and if he can't make us go into the occult and stuff with that, then he's gonna, he pushes some people so far that their Christianity becomes about seeing miracles and attending exciting meetings and, and signs and wonders instead of about Jesus. He takes our conscience, which God gave us to lead us to him. And some people, he can turn off their conscience and, and their heart gets hard and they don't care. But if he can't turn off your conscience, he's going to turn it on high crank that dial to 11 and you're going to be full of guilt and shame and never be able to worship or pray because I'm not sure that God actually loves me. He takes our need for goals and vision and, and direction in life and turns it into selfish ambition and delusion about how important we are and what we can accomplish. And then the people who see that that is a, is a sin... And you're naturally predisposed to humility and self-denial and I don't want to be presumptive and arrogant. He's going to crank that to 11 and make you hate yourself and you have nothing good to pre- present to the world and, and that turns into some sort of fatalistic laziness where I don't try anything because I'm not supposed to do anything important or be anything. Do you see his strategies? He's always going to come in what's good, not in what's dark and evil and bloody, although he's in that for sure. He takes the beautiful truth of God's grace and he turns it into God loves you no matter what you do. He takes the beautiful truth of God's foreknowledge and his predestination and he gets us to believe that everything that happens is God's fault so you need to be mad at him for what he allowed to happen to you. He takes the beauty of the judgment of God and he says you better be terrified of God. You're never going to be good enough. You better keep away from him. You better feel dirty and scared and guilty all the time. And if that one doesn't get you, then he'll take the love of God and tell you, God would never send you to hell. He loves you. You're his favorite. It's awful quiet in this Baptist church this morning. He can't, he's so uncreative, he cannot create anything. He can only take what is good and lie about it or twist it or push it outside of God's boundaries. So with the world, he comes with this counterfeit gospel that sounds like love, but it's just hippieism and permission of sin. 
In the church, he takes God's truths and he twists them and he lies about them and he moves us away from Jesus. But if you are one who just refuses to listen to that even, I'm going to believe God. I'm going to stand on his promises. I'm going to do it right. I'm, I believe this book and I'm going to follow Jesus. If he can't get you to believe lies, then he's going to cause doubt. He's going to accuse you and slander you both through other people and in your own heart. I'm sure that doesn't happen with any of you. It does with me. He's going to cause doubt. He's going to accuse. He's going to slander. He's going to insinuate. He's going to harass and ask questions. He's going to lie about you because he's got to get you to quit, to be discouraged, to be exhausted, to be bitter and angry, keep you fantasizing about an easier job or an easier marriage or an easier ministry so that he can rob your joy because that's your energy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is your energy. Or if he can't get you to believe lies, he's going to try to get you to quit. His goal with all of us is the same as it was with Eve. He asked one question and made one statement. He said, did God really say that? And he said, you won't die. Those are the two things he still says to every single one of us. Do you really believe this? Are you sure that God meant what he said? You probably ought to have a backup plan. You, in fact, you need to panic right now because God isn't going to fix your situation. You need to take matters into your own hand right now because he knows if he can get you to act, you will screw it up. He's still asking the same question. Do you really believe the word of God? And he's still making the same statement. God loves you. He wouldn't kill you. Even if you disobey. He won't send you to hell. You can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. His goal is still the same. You can be your own God. Decide for yourself what is good and bad. You're an intelligent and good person. You don't need to exactly obey all of this. You can pick and choose what you want, what you like, and what you don't. So Jesus said, the Pharisees are the sons of Satan. Satan is the father of people who think they are good enough that they don't need Jesus. I'm here to invite you to switch families today. If Satan has been your father, if you have never admitted that you're not a good person and you need saved, that you can't defeat the problems and the darkness in your own life, I'm here to invite you to have a new father. God loves you. There is nothing that you have done, nothing that's been done to you, nothing that Satan has done that God cannot fix and undo. And he will receive you no matter how dark it's been. He would love to have you in his family. If you choose to stay in Satan's turf, there's not much God can do for you. His love is available. His salvation and healing and freedom are available all day, every day. But there isn't much he can do for you if you choose to reject it. If you want to stay under the authority and power and influence of this guy, you are free to choose that. But nobody in this room wants you to do that. We would love to introduce you to our Heavenly Father. There are others of you who have been walking with God in one capacity or another. You have admitted, I am not a good person. I am trapped and I need a Savior. I can't defeat this guy. He is in me and I can't defeat it. And you've been walking with God in one capacity or another. You need to know that Satan is got some pretty major limitations for those of you who are in Christ. He's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He doesn't know everything. He can't read your mind. Uh, he's not everywhere at once. He's not God's equal and opposite at all. His power is very limited to what God permits him to do. In Job 1, Satan comes and accuses Job, and God says, all right, go ahead, test him. You'll see. 
Job is faithful to me. And Satan says, I can't because you've hedged him in on all four sides. I can't touch him. So the point is, God's protection was around Job. Satan couldn't do what God didn't give him permission to do. In Luke 22, Jesus, before he was crucified, tells Peter, he says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Satan had to ask permission of Jesus to test Peter. Jesus doesn't say what his answer was, but we know it was yes because it is what happens that night. Peter rejects Jesus three times. You know the story. And then there's a five or six day process there where Peter is being sifted. And Jesus says, I'm praying for you that your faith will not fail. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Well, that ought to make you bounce up out of your chair. Jesus is praying for you. Is there anybody better? Come on. Perfect prayer. The son who has the father's heart. The son who's sitting next to God with his own blood on the mercy seat saying, Father, forgive her. Father, bear him up. Don't let him die. Don't let him fail. In all of his prayers that Paul writes out, he never once does he pray that we wouldn't have troubles. He just prays that our faith won't fail. The devil cannot touch us unless God gives him permission. And when God does, it is always to lead us to victory. We can't control what other people do, but in our own heart and life, it is always to lead us into victory. God says, I will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet, in your life, in your heart. Realize that Satan is a defeated foe. He's still on the throne, but he has been defeated. He has not been unthroned, but he is defeated. Remember that Jesus is praying for you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So there is our part to pay attention and be aware of what he's trying to do. He is crawling around like a lion. But Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. There's way too many Christians who are obsessed with binding evil spirits and spiritual warfare, and we got to be on guard against the devil when the Bible tells us what we have to be vigilant about. It says make sure you don't go to bed with unforgiveness in your heart because that's what gives the devil a foothold in your life. It's okay to be angry. You can be hurt, but forgive instantly. Because if you let anger and unforgiveness live in your heart, Satan will move in. It would be wonderful if we could blame all our problems on spirits and other stupid people. But God says, it's your own heart. When Jesus went to the cross, he says, the prince of the world is now judged and he has nothing in me. Listen to Jesus' language. He has nothing in me. There is not a single person I don't love. There's no one I haven't forgiven. I don't have any selfishness or greed in me. He has no territory in my heart. I'm not at all. We'll talk about spiritual warfare later. I'm not saying it's wrong or there aren't, isn't a place for that kind of thing. But we love to externalize this. Oh, the devil made me do it. Or I got attacked by the devil. Or... We're looking around for this lion that's going to jump on us when the situation is, I got mad at my husband today and I don't want to forgive him. Notice, he doesn't come from the outside pouncing on us like a lion. It comes from the inside, folks. Our spiritual battle is against our own attitude. Our own unforgiveness, our own anger, our own pride, our own selfishness. That's the spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. The armor is our helmet of salvation, our breastplate of righteousness, and the sword of the Spirit, and the shield of faith. 
with which we may quench the darts of the evil one. You've been hit by some fiery darts before? There are situations that come at us from the outside. There is spiritual attack. There are sinful people that do stuff to us that we did not see coming. We didn't cause it. Most of it we do, and we don't want to admit it. We cause our own conflicts. But there are people that just sin against us without us precipitating that. Jesus says, hold up your shield. Faith is what catches those darts, and they burn. They really do. We've all been burned mostly by words, but people's actions and rejections. and They burn. They really do. But the shield of faith, faith to forgive, faith to respond with humility, faith to love. We do not wrestle with flesh and blood. You don't take your sword and go attack your wife or your boss or whoever else you think is your problem. No, your own heart is the problem. That's where we have to be vigilant. So those of you who've never made Jesus Lord, I invite you to change families this morning. We would love you to have a new father who is completely unlike your natural father. He is completely unlike Satan. He is loving and patient and forgiving and kind. And his truth is true. If you've already made Jesus Lord, I tell you, you do not have to be afraid of the devil. He can't do anything God doesn't give him permission to. He's not going to jump out of the bushes and land on your life and wreck it. The battle we're fighting is in our own heart. And for those of you who are scared of that stuff, you just need to know it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Just trust him. Believe him. Obey him. Stay tight with Jesus. Resist the devil and he will flee. It's all about Jesus. He's the one who defeated Satan. He doesn't even break a sweat. It doesn't worry him. It doesn't scare him. No plan of the enemy bothers Jesus at all. He's got it all wrapped up. Satan was cast out of heaven. He was cursed in the garden. Jesus defeated his strategies in the wilderness. He's judged at the cross. He was rendered powerless at the tomb. He will be militarily defeated when Jesus returns and he will be locked up for eternity in the lake of fire by God the Father. Yay, Jesus! Yeah! Lord, we love you, we bless you, we praise your holy name. Thank you for your victory. We believe that you are the victor over darkness and the grave. You are the victory over all the problems of the world, Lord. We believe your word. We look around the world and we see such terrible suffering and problems that can't be fixed and solutions that don't come. Lord, we see the lies of the enemy that look so good on the surface. Some of them are so enticing. But we'd say yes to you. We believe it is all about you. You are the king of our hearts. You are the king of kings, the name above every name. You are on the throne in the kingdom of heaven. And of the increase of your government, there will never be an end. Lord, we trust you that you will return and that you will establish your government. You will judge the ruler of this world and you will lock him up and we will finally be free from his torments. Thank you that in the meantime you have given us the sword of the spirit and the shield of faith. We do not need to be scared of him. Just wise. Lord, you have given us truth, weapons of faith and love and forgiveness and joy and peace. These are the weapons you have given us to fight the battle against darkness. Thank you that we can rejoice in victory.